Hello everyone. So I I'm, I'm gonna make three quick announcements and we're gonna start this episode officially. I'm taking a one month break from talking about sex, which started yesterday. Today, my organized crime one month break from talking about that subject started this morning and tonight my one month break from talking about religion will start as soon as I publish this episode tonight. So without a further ado, let us proceed. Evilbible.com fighting against immorality and religion. Sexism in the Torah. Sexism is quite rampant in the Torah. Considering the Hebrews were once a very chauvinistic society when it was written. As a feminist, yes, I'm a feminist just like the author of this particular article. I find it my duty to cite the following verses and remind fellow women of the sexist pig, also known as the biblical God, they are told to worship. I cannot possibly list all the injustices that the Torah mentions. Everything from the story of Lilith, who was booted out of Eden for having dominant sex with Adam, not against Adam, to how women are blamed for the fall from grace, eating of the fruit in Genesis. I had to settle for merely presenting a sample list as of right now, and I shall add more verses as I thumb through the Pentateuch a second time. In the meanwhile, please feel free to utilize anything you hear here. H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E. How does that first paragraph make me make me think I'm acknowledging that throughout history there's biblical support for the mis- for the abuse misuse debasement degradation desecration Injuries, damages, harms, hurts, wrongs, injustices, insults, mistreatment, violations, malevolence, mishandling, mismanagements, pollutions, defilements, perversions, and the dishonoring of women and girls. Now I'm going to tell you how I feel about the second paragraph after I read it. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 says that all women must suffer great pains during childbirth due to Eve eating the fruit of knowledge as if it's somehow just that somehow just that humans should pay for their ancestors' sins, nor is a woman dying in labor somehow befitting of a crime she did not commit. The verse finishes off 
by saying a husband shall quote unquote rule over his woman, stripping us off all power in between the sexes. So what how does that second the second paragraph make me think? I'm acknowledging that there's biblical support for the attempted robberies of the abilities, aptitudes, intelligences, inequalities, powers, potencies, worths, talents, gifts, geniuses, geniusness, capabilities, competence, proficiencies, adeptness, qualifications, knowledges, self-sufficiency, techniques, crafts, skills, artistry, skillfulness, dexterity, facilities, flares, finesses, masteries, cleverness, deafness, ex- experiences, ingenuity, strengths, understandings, faculties, comprehensions, making sense, what it takes, brains, knack, the hang of some, the hang of some things, the know-hows, and the brilliances of women and girls. Genesis chapter 19 verse 8 tells of a man named Lot who offered his daughters to a crowd of would-be angel rapers. Yes, he offered his daughters to be gang raped. Later, Lot impregnates his own daughters after God kills his wife for simply looking back the remains of her city. She turned into a pillar of salt. Lot is said to be Righteous in the Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11 of faith. But Lot's daughters are harshly judged for drunken incest initiation with their father. But Lot is not harshly judged by society for wanting his daughter to be ravished by perverts who happen to have testicles and penises. So, there was rape culture when it came to Lot that I think he instilled in his daughters. Because his daughters didn't get the help they needed, they perpetuated the incestuous sexuality with their dad because he may have initiated incestuous sexuality against them first. And when I say incestual sexuality, rape in the form of incest. That's what I'm saying. And so how does all these things in the second paragraph make me think? I, I recognize that there's biblical support for making women and girls feel abandoned, deserted, desolate, destitute, desperate, empty, unused, vacated, left, neglected, relinquished. Lonely, forsaken, solitary, hopeless, cast off, cast aside, 
cast away, forgotten, shunned, forlorn, avoided, outcast, rejected, helpless, unfortunate, alone, discarded, scorned, lost, doomed, friendless, wretched, thrown overboard, out on a limb, waiting at the church, left in the lurch, in the cold, left holding the bag. Genesis chapter 38, verses 16 through 24, tells a very interesting story of a man named Judah whom lived with his widowed daughter-in-law. His daughter-in-law was grieving and wearing the veils of mourning while Judah, a rather stupid-ass motherfucker, mistook for the clothing of a sex worker that would have been called a prostitute back then but we call her sex worker now. He ended up impregnating his daughter-in-law and she left this city. On a later date, Judah sees the young woman again and demanded she be burned for being a sex worker. He called her a prostitute. Here is for people who don't get sarcasm. We're not justifying this. That's why the term sarcasm, I just used it. It says, I like how only the woman is punished when they both engaged in the sexual act. It wasn't until Judah recognized the woman as his daughter-in-law and she was with his child that he decided not to kill her. Basically, Judah can commit incest, use a sex worker, he called her a prostitute, in his mistaken perception and impregnate a much younger woman, yet he thinks she is the one deserving of death. So how does this third... Actually, fourth paragraph... How does this fourth paragraph make me think? I come to recognize... That there is biblical support for making women and girls feel accused, arranged, indicted, incriminated, charged with, under suspicion, alleged to be guilty, apprehended, held for questioning, liable, involved, under attack, under fire, implicate and implicated. Since we're talking about sexism in the Torah, that's what I'm saying what I'm saying. Okay. Exodus chapter 21, verse 3 through 4 says that if a male slave is given a wife by his master, regardless of how long they are wed, how much they love each other, or if they have kids, he cannot leave servanthood with his wife or children. The woman and children are merely property of the master. And their personal happiness or sanctity of family doesn't matter. How, how, how does this fifth paragraph make me think? It makes me think that... That there's biblical support for 
for the abnormalities of trauma, the peculiarity of trauma, the malformation of trauma. as well as the incompetence of trauma, the ignorance of trauma, the inexperience of peace, not experiencing peace that trauma brings. And let me use harsher terms so you can really understand how serious I am taking these words. I, I, I feel, I feel healthy anger, healthy wrath, healthy rage, healthy fury, healthy animosity, healthy indignation, healthy hatred, healthy resentment, healthy ire, healthy hot temper, healthy impatience, healthy vexation, healthy annoyance, healthy provocation, Healthy violence, healthy passion, healthy bad temper, healthy temper, healthy violence, healthy turbulence, healthy healthy frenzy, healthy tantrums, healthy exasperation, healthy huffing, healthy irritation, healthy dander, and a healthy excitement for justice. Those are how these things make me feel. Those, that's how that paragraph makes me think. Okay. Exodus chapter 21 verse 7. God not only sanctions selling one's daughter into slavery, but he also gives out laws on how it should be done. I'm going to tell you how that makes me think. I feel heartbroken. I feel melancholy. I feel pissed off, pissed the fuck off. I feel unpleasant amazement. I feel befuddlement. I feel bewilderment. I feel confusion. I feel concern. And I feel like I've been gut punched repeatedly and endlessly. Exodus chapter 21 verse 10. God ordains men taking several wives and even sets up laws as to how multiple wives should be handled. That makes me feel despondency, 
aggravation, furious, and strong depression. Leviticus chapter 12 verses 1 through 8 explains that a woman has to be purified after giving birth because she is quote-unquote unclean. It goes on to say that birthing a male is cleaner than birthing a female. Hence, a mother must purify twice as long when having a daughter. This is blatant sexism from the point of birth. A woman is dirty simply for being a woman. This is obviously very biased and chauvinistic. Okay, how does that all make me think? I'm feeling... Heatedly sad, indignantly sad, angrily sad, irately sad, grouchily sad, crisply sad, sharply sad, savagely sad, hotly sad, fiercely sad, tartly sad, bitterly sad, fiercely sad, wildly sad, violently sad. Leviticus chapter 15 verses 19 through 30 explains that a woman having her menstruation must be avoided to the point of not even touching what she has touched. It is quite curious that women are punished for simply having a biological function that quote unquote God claims to have created. What is so just about vilifying what you created? How does all that make me feel? I feel anger. I feel enraged. I am irritated. I'm annoyed and I'm infuriated. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 19 goes on to say that even looking at a menstruating woman is wrong. That makes me feel anguish, wretchedness, pain, and agony. Leviticus chapter... 21 verse 9 explains that unchaste daughters of priests must be burnt to death. What about his unchaste sons? Of course, this e- this isn't even answered in the Torah. We are to assume yet again that men have the power to do as they wish and a woman must suffer the punishment for both of them. How does that make me feel? I feel angry, enraged, fierce, fiery. Irate, raging, fuming, infuriated, furious, wrathful, stormy, indignant, outraged, and cross. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 3 through 7. God places a dollar value on human life with women worth less than men. How does that make me feel? I feel vexed, resentful, irritated, bitter, ferocious, offended, sullen, annoyed, provoked, and displeased.
Numbers chapter 1 verse 2 is the basis for the sexism that remains rampant today. In this verse, Moses takes a poll of all the men who are able to fight in war. Women aren't even counted in women aren't even counted in the census. Apparently back then just like today, us women are considered the weaker species and unable to battle. Let's not forget that during the time the Pentateuch was written, women in pagan cultures were feared and revered as the more powerful species. It is because of this patriarchal religion and its offshoots that we have been reduced to cowering subhumans. How does all this make me feel? I feel riled, affronted, huffy, hostile, rabid, mad, hot, under the collar, boiling, steamed up at the boiling point with my back up. Fit to be tied, all worked up, up in arms. That's how all the sexism is against women and girls is making me feel. Numbers chapter 30, verses 3 through 16. A woman can't make a vow unless her husband allows it. How does that make me feel? It makes me feel... This heavy presence of woe, sorrow... And makes me want to go suffer from a crying spell. That's how heavy-hearted and heavy-laden I feel. Numbers chapter 31 verses 14 to 18. Moses tells his men to kill all the males, non-virginal women, elderly and children of the Midianite tribe. Of course, the virgin women are kept for raping. If you read later down in the scripture, God states that the Jews cannot even marry a Midianite woman with exception to Moses. Hence, these women who were captured were, were repeatedly raped and impregnated and they weren't even allowed a marital status in which to protect them. How does all this make me feel? It's all annoying, irritating, bothersome, vexatious, disturbing, worrisome, burdensome, and troublesome. It bothers me. It troubles me. And it's pestering to me. I'm sick of the antagonism, the enmity, hostility, and opposition, hatred that women and girls are forced to endure. I'm tired of those those sickening realities occurring to women and girls.
Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 13 through 15 says, Kill all the men and boys in the cities that God delivers into your hands, but keep the women for raping. How does all this make me feel? I feel annoyance, a feeling of annoyance, vexation, irritation, pique, uneasiness, disgust, and displeasure. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 11 through 14. If you see a pretty woman among the captives, then just take her home and go in unto her. How does all this make me feel? I feel provocation, nervousness, exasperation, indignation, touchiness, perturbation, moodiness, and mortification. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. Women that wear men's clothing are an abomination to the Lord. How does all that make me feel? I feel vexation, worry, distress, unhappiness, discontentment, heartache, misery, aches and pains, dissatisfaction, impatience, and my pet peeves are being realized. It's it's also a source of annoyance for me. It's difficulty for me. It's troubling for me. It worries me. It's negatively incon of uh, it's a neg it, it, those are all traumatic inconveniences and they're all monstrous nuisances. Okay. When I say okay meaning Next paragraph, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 22 says, Women, be sure to keep the tokens of your virginity. Otherwise, the men of your city may stone you to death. This does not apply to men, though, of course. What is interesting to note here is the actual wording. It says that if a man hateth his wife, he may say she did not have the tokens of her virginity. Since there is no way a woman can truly prove she had a hymen upon marriage, the word rests on the husband and she can be disposed of simply when he tires of her. How does all, how? How does all this make me feel? To be more forthcoming with you. It's all appalling, horrifying, shocking, dreadful, frightful, dismaying, and badly amazing. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 to 24 is one of the most cruel and sexist passages of the Torah. It says that women who are raped and fail to cry out loud in a populated area are most likely enjoying the, the attack should be killed.
I'm silent for a minute because I'm using the dictionary to best describe my feelings. Those are okay. The okay means I found the words to describe my thoughts on what I just read to you. Those are all atrocities, brutalities, inhumanity, wickedness, barbarity, cruelty, cruel deeds, abominations, horrors, outrageous, and in our modern time, we see that as criminality. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28 through 29 says a rapist must buy his victim from her father for 50 shekels. Is this supposed to be some type of retribution? What about the victim here? What if she doesn't want to marry a pig who raped her? All that matters is her father receives payments for his property. How this all how does all of this makes me feel? It makes me feel bothered, annoyed, agitated, disturbed, and troubled. Then Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 11 through 12 says that we must cut off a woman's hand if she touches the quote unquote secrets of a man who is fighting with her husband. And thine eyes shall not pity her. Once again, there is no punishment for the man she touched. Only the woman. How does all this make me feel? It makes me more determined to do everything in my power to annihilate misogyny to demolish misogyny, to exterminate misogyny, to obliterate misogyny, and to destroy misogyny. And that particular passage does make me feel Anguish, great mental or physical pain, agony to feel or cause to feel angst, A-N-G-S-T. There's more. Now, as I... So, as I start this, I want to make it clear that I reject 
what the Bible writers have to say about Jesus because I don't it let's I don't let's say Jesus was real. I don't have the evidence that says he is. I don't have the evidence for it. But let's just say he was real. I don't think the historical Jesus and the biblical Jesus are one and the same. I think the historical Jesus would do 100% well in our modern day. Um, I think he would be... As celebrated as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is among us young people, I think he would think just like them. I think he would make the same and similar choices as they make. I think the historical Jesus was the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warren of his day. However, the biblical Jesus is depicted as someone that makes Christian nationalists dance for joy. So the historical Jesus and the biblical Jesus are never the same person. I'm denouncing the Bible writers as Christian nationalist version of Jesus. When I say, when I Alongside the author criticized Jesus, we're talking about what the Bible has had to say about them. The historical Jesus, he's not being denounced. Okay? So I need y'all to know the difference. Because what I'm about to say, I'm going there. And this is from evilbible.com, fighting against immorality and religion. What would the biblical Jesus do. I'm going to say biblical Jesus so you understand one more time. The historical Jesus, let's say if he existed, he would also be a human rights movement champion. Sadly, the biblical Jesus is not because it's he's some, the biblical Jesus is somebody that Dominion theology minded people want to throw a party in his honor. Let's go. What would biblical Jesus do? Advocate child abuse, murder, and other cruelties. Before I go any further, When I say Christians, I'm talking about the legalistic ones, the pharisaical ones. I'm not talking about the ones who actually mean society no harm. So when I say Christians, I'm going to say legalistic, pharisaical to know what type of Christians I'm talking about, okay? Here we go. Legalistic pharisaical Christians always claiming he's the lamb, our savior, the king of peace, the embodiment of love, and many other names that associate with a loving, merciful nature. The biblical Jesus, a nice guy, 
not in my book, nor in any other person's who is capable of compassion and rationality. Let's examine who the hell the biblical Jesus character really is, pun intended. These verses will show not only that the biblical Jesus is loving nature a joke, but so are the legalistic, pharisaical Christians who worship him. I'm attacking the Christian nationalists who claim to be Christians. Those are the only people who say they're Christians that I'm attacking. All the other type of Christians, you should not be offended by what you're hearing. Because when they say those titles associated with Jesus, they don't mean them in a loving way like the other Christians do. Okay? So I really, really need believers listening to understand that's what I'm talking about. The biblical Jesus is a real mission to come to earth. The biblical Jesus says he has come to destroy families by making family members hate each other. He has come not to send peace but a sword. Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. The biblical Jesus says, Don't imagine that I came to bring peace on earth. No, rather a sword if you love your father, mother, sister, brother more than me. You are not worthy of being mine. The real beauty of this verse is that the biblical Jesus demands people truly love him more than they love their own families. I ask you, how can we love someone that we cannot see or interact with? Love is an emotion pertaining to physical existence, not to faithful ideologies. Yet God threatens you with death just because your love for your mother may be stronger than your love for quote unquote him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. I feel emotional depletion and psychological depletion based upon those two passages I just read to you. That is how woeful my heart is when it comes to those things. Families will be torn apart because of the biblical Jesus. Brothers shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. I feel heartache and heartache because of that. The biblical Jesus strongly approves of the law and the prophets. He hasn't the slightest objection to the cruelties of the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I feel... that these are all that's just it's that's just complete bullshit to me that's what I'm feeling just it's just all fucked up and all shitty
The biblical Jesus advocates murder and death. The biblical Jesus condemns entire cities to dreadful deaths and to the eternal torment of hell because they didn't care for his preaching. Matthew chapter 11 verse 20. What an ass crack and what an ass wipe. Revelation chapter 19 verses 13 through 15. The biblical Jesus, whose clothes are dipped in blood, has a sharp sword sticking out of his mouth. Thus attired, he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress is the actual press that humans shall be put into so that we may be ground up. Such an asshole and such... A shit crack. The beast and the false prophet are cast alive into a lake of fire. The rest of us, the unchosen, will be killed with the sword of the biblical Jesus. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 through 21. How does that make me feel? He's a shit bag. He's a shit stain. The biblical Jesus says he's the only way to salvation, yet he purposely delusions us so that we will go to hell. The biblical Jesus explains that the reason he speaks in parables is so that no one will understand him, lest they should understand and should be converted. I should heal him. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 15, Mark chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 says, Jesus explains why he speaks in parables to confuse people so they will go to hell. How does all those things make me feel? He's a pile of shit and he's a piece of shit. The biblical Jesus advocates child abuse. The biblical Jesus is criticized by the Pharisees for not washing his hands before eating. He he defends himself by attacking them for not killing disobedient children according to the commandment. He that curseth, curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Matthew chapter 15, verse 4 to 7. The biblical Jesus is pure evil. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Abandon your wife and children for Jesus and he'll give you a big reward. Jesus also, the biblical Jesus acts that his followers abandon their children to follow him. To leave your child is abuse, it's called neglect, pure and simple. The biblical Jesus is heartless. Matthew chapter 7 verse 9, the biblical Jesus criticizes the Jews for not killing their disobedient children according to the Old Testament law. The biblical Jesus is compassionless. A few other things about the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus says that those who have been less fortunate in this life will have it even worse in the life to come. Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 4 verse 25. The biblical Jesus lacks empathy. Mark chapter 5 verse 12 through 13. The biblical Jesus sends the devils into 2,000 pigs causing them to jump off a cliff and be drowned in the sea. Clearly, the biblical Jesus could have simply sent the devils out, yet he chose instead to place them into pigs and kill them. This is called 
animal abuse. The biblical Jesus is a narcissist and a sociopath. Mark chapter 11 verse 13. The biblical Jesus kills a fig tree for not bearing figs, even though it was out of season. Jesus must not be as smart as the Christian nationalists who call themselves Christians would have us believe, for he was dumb enough to do something this silly. You think the son of God, God incarnate, would know that trees don't bear fruit in dry season, according to Mark chapter 11, verse 13. The biblical Jesus is a psychopath. Luke chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus okays, biblical Jesus okays beating slaves. So the biblical Jesus is a blood-sucking vampire who likes to drain the life out of people. There's more. I really have to do this one. EvilBible.com, Fight Against Immorality and Religion. We're referring to the biblical God, okay? I think if there was or is a real God, that God actually has none of the schizophrenic and bipolar attributes of the biblical one. I think if there's a God, it's nothing like the God of religious texts. I think if there's a God, that God has all the redeeming qualities that all of the gods of all the religious texts severely, extremely lack. So, the the biblical God is impossible. Here's the introduction. Legalistic pharisaical Christians consider the existence of their God to be an obvious truth that no sane person could deny. I, just like the author, I too strongly disagree with this assumption only because evidence for the existence of this presumably ubiquitous yet invisible deity they refer to as God is lacking beyond measure and beyond compare but because the very nature that these legalistic pharisaical Christians attribute to this biblical God is very much self-contradictory proving a universal negative it is taken for granted by pharisaical legalistic Christians as well as 
many atheists that a universal negative cannot be proven. In this case, that universal negative is the statement that the Christian God does not exist. One would have to have omniscience, they say, in order to prove that anything does not exist. Just like the author, I too strongly disagree with this position, however, because omniscience is not needed in order to prove that a thing whose nature is a self-contradiction cannot and therefore does not exist. I do not need a complete knowledge of the universe to prove to you that cubic spheres do not exist. I agree with the author. Such objects have mutually exclusive attributes which would render their existence impossible. For example, a cube by definition has eight corners while a sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E, has none. These properties are completely incompatible. They cannot be held simultaneously by the same object. It is my intent to show that the supposed properties of the Christian God, Yahweh, like those of a cubic sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E, are incompatible, and by so doing, to show Yahweh's existence to be an impossibility until science verifies Yahweh's existence. So for everything, every word the author is saying, I'm strongly agreeing with. Defining the biblical God. Before we can discuss the existence of a thing, we must define it. Legalistic pharisaical Christians have endowed their God with all the following attributes. Quote-unquote, he is eternal, all-powerful, and created everything. Quote-unquote, he created all the laws of nature can change anything by an active will. Quote-unquote, he is all-good, all-loving, and perfectly just. Quote-unquote, he is a personal God who experiences all the emotions a human does. Quote-unquote, he is all-knowing. Quote-unquote, he sees everything past and future. I hate the depictions of God as a singular masculine gender because cis-heteropatriarchy is tragically and sadly championed by Bible writers and so many believers, so many theists, so many religionists. I... I'm thinking that let's say there was an actual God. That actual God hates cis-heteropatriarchy, not loves it. The biblical God's creation was originally perfect, but humans, by disobeying, quote-unquote, him, brought imperfection into the world. Humans are evil and sinful. I, uh... By the way, I think that original sin is bullshit because in religion, they interpret original sin as let's Christianize Dennis Rotman's as bad as I want to be. I'm going to be as sinful as I want to be. In fact, I claim to be sensitive and sensitized to quote unquote sin, but in reality, I know that I'm desensitized and insensitive to quote-unquote sin. We're all born bad, so we can never take full responsibility or full accountability 
for our purposeful misdeeds. So we're off the hook. And so we can do, we can do as much evil and toxicity as we can because it's God's fault that, quote unquote, he made us his dumpsters. We and when we die, we'll be God's dumpster fires. Hell. Night and also original sin is bullshit because it creates antagonistic attitudes towards children, teenagers, prepubescents, toddlers, babies, preteens, young adults, and just all young people. So according to conservative theology, which I hate, humans are evil and sinful and must suffer in this world because of their sinfulness. God gives humans the opportunity to accept forgiveness for their sins and all who do will be rewarded with eternal bliss in heaven. But while they're on earth, they must suffer for his sake. All humans who choose not to accept this forgiveness must go to hell and be tormented for eternity. (sighs) Okay. So how does these particular passages make me feel? I am noticing stupidity, behavior that shows a lack of good sense or judgment, lack of intelligence, unintelligence, foolishness, denseness, brainlessness, ignorance, and mindlessness. But the biblical God, based upon what I've seen, especially the championing of both genocide and slavery, it, it he comes off all bad, all hateful, and 100% unjust. He comes off all temporal, all powerless, and incapable of creating anything. And all ignorant and all non-seeing. That's how he comes off. One Bible verse which legalistic pharisaical Christians are fond of quoting saying says that atheists are fools. I intend to show that the above concepts of the biblical God are completely incompatible and so reveal the impossibility of all them being true. Who is the fool? The fool is the one who believes impossible things and calls them divine mysteries. For me, that means... Shouldn't we know these things so they could be called, div- you know, knowledge? Just simply call it knowledge. 
But once you have knowledge and evidence, faith and belief are trashed. And once you have certainty and security, hope and trust are dashed. Here we go. Perfection begets imperfection. But for the sake of argument, let's continue. Let us suppose that this quote-unquote perfect God did create the universe. And I strongly doubt the quote-unquote flawlessness of this said God. Um, Humans, according to biblical theology... Humans were the crown of, quote-unquote, his creation since they were created in God's image and had the ability to make decisions. However, these humans spoiled the original perfection by choosing to disobey God. How do all these things make me feel? To me, it's dullness, slow-wittedness, doltishness, um craziness, silliness, absurdity, and irrationality, meaninglessness, ludicrousness, and idiocy, senselessness, and irresponsibility as well. What? If something is perfect, nothing imperfect can come from it. Someone once said that bad fruit cannot come from a good tree, and yet this quote-unquote perfect God created a quote-unquote perfect universe which was rendered imperfect by the quote-unquote perfect humans. The ultimate source of imperfection surely must be the biblical God. What is perfect cannot be imperfect, so humans must have been created imperfect, imperfectly. What is perfect cannot create anything imperfect, so God must be imperfect to have created these imperfect humans. A perfect God who creates imperfect humans is impossible. And all I can say is, I strongly agree and I strongly concur. The free will argument. The Pharisaic legalist of Christians' objection to this argument involves free will. They say that a being must have free will to be happy. The this opposed this alleged and this alleged omnibenevolent God did not wish to create robots. So, quote-unquote, he gave humans free will to enable them to experience love and happiness. But the humans used this free will to choose evil, introduced imperfection to God's originally perfect universe. So God had no control over this decision. So the blame for our imperfect universe is on the humans, not God. Okay, how does all this make me fucking feel? It's all illogical, all 
lacking of practicality. I'm seeing the absence of pragmatism. It's all insane and deranged. Here's why the argument is weak. First, if God is omnipotent and the assumption that free will is necessary for happiness is false, if God can make it a rule that only beings with free will may experience happiness, then he could just as easily have made it a rule that only robots may experience happiness. The latter option is clearly superior, since perfect robots will never make decisions which could render them or their creator unhappy, whereas beings with free will could. A perfect omnipotent God who creates beings capable of ruining their own happiness is impossible. I love... the scholarly intellectualism that this author is presenting, the facts are indisputable with what the author is saying. Second, even if we were to allow the necessity of free will for happiness, God could have created humans with free will who did not have the ability to choose evil, but to choose between several good options. Third, God supposedly has free will, yet he he does not make imperfect decisions. If humans are many miniature images of God, our decisions should likewise be perfect. Also, the occupants of heaven, who presumably must have free will to be happy, will never use that free will to make imperfect decisions. Why would the originally perfect humans do differently? The point remains. The presence of imperfections in the universe disproves the supposed perfection of its creator. This author is speaking truths. And this author, like myself, is into being a rational realist. So therefore, I'm pleased with the author's writings. All good God knowingly creates future suffering. God is omnipotent according to conservative theology. When, quote, quote, he created the universe, he saw the sufferings which humans would endure as a result of the sin of those original humans. He heard the screams of the damned. Surely he would have known that it would have been better for those humans to never have been born. In fact, the Bible says this very thing. And surely this all-compassionate deity would have foregone the creation of a universe destined to imperfection in which many of the humans were doomed to eternal suffering. A perfectly compassionate being who creates beings which he knows are doomed to suffer is impossible. The writings of this author are giving me healthy adrenaline rushes because it is positively electrifying me in all the correct ways. So yes, I'm experiencing wholesome gratification for what she is saying. 
In finite punishment for finite sins, God is perfectly just, and yet he sentences the imperfect humans he created to infinite suffering in hell for finite sins. Clearly, a limited offense does not warrant unlimited punishment. God's sentencing of the imperfect humans to an eternity in hell for a mere mortal lifetime of sin is infinitely more unjust than this punishment. The absurd injustice of this infinite punishment is even greater when we consider that the ultimate source of human imperfection is the God who created them. A perfectly just God who sentences his imperfect creation to infinite punishment for finite sins is impossible. Uh, I'm well pleased with this author. Her logic puts a genuine smile on my face. Belief more important than action. Consider all of the people who live in the remote regions of the world who have never heard, who have never even heard the quote unquote gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider the people who have naturally adhered to the religion of their parents and nation as they had been taught to do since birth. If we are to believe the Pharisaic legalistic Christians, all these people will perish in the eternal fire for not believing in Jesus. It does not matter how just kind and generous they have been with their fellow humans during their lifetime if they do not accept the gospel of jesus they are condemned no just god would ever judge a person by their beliefs rather than their actions (sighs) her writing is the calm soothing jazz music to my ears that puts me at restful sleep and I wake up energized in the morning so beautifully that I look forward to starting my day. Perfections in perfect revelation. The Bible is supposedly God's perfect word, which it's not. It contains instructions to humankind for avoiding the eternal fires of hell. How wonderful and kind of this God to provide us with this means of overcoming the problems for which he is ultimately responsible. The all-powerful God could have, by a mere act of will, eliminated all of the problems we humans must endure, but instead... In, quote-unquote, his infinite wisdom, he has opted to offer this in indecipherable amalgam of books, which is the Bible as a means for avoiding the hell which he has prepared for us. And, okay. The all-powerful God could have by a mere act of will and limit all the problems we humans must endure, but instead, in quote-unquote, his infinite wisdom is offered he has opted to offer this indecipherable amalgam of books, which is the Bible's a means for avoiding the hell, which, quote, unquote, he has prepared for us. 
The perfect God has decided to reveal his wishes in this imperfect work, written in the imperfect language of imperfect men, no women, another form of misogyny, translated, the Bible has translation errors, transliterated, the Bible has transliteration errors, copied, the Bible has copying errors, Interpreted, the Bible has interpretation errors and misinterpretations. Voted on, the Bible has voting errors. And related by imperfect people, the Bible has relatability errors, resonance errors, and relevance errors. The Bible is irrelevant. And versions, the Bible has versions errors too. No two people will ever agree what this, and the author and I are saying this sarcastically, perfect word of God is supposed to mean since much of it is either self-contradictory or obscured by ignomatic symbols. I would say that the Bible is self-contradictory and the Bible is obscured by ignomatic symbols. And yet, the perfect God, in quotations, expects us imperfect humans to understand this paradoxical riddle using the imperfect minds with which he has equipped us. Surely this all-wise and all-powerful God would have known that it would have been better to reveal his perfect will directly to each of us rather than to allow it to be debased and perverted by the imperfect language and botched interpretations of people. Oh, I'm so thankful for her existence and I'm so thankful for the evilbible.com fighting against, fight against immorality and religion website that she created. I'm so thankful for her contradictory justice one need look to no source other than the bible to discover its imperfections for it contradicts itself and thus exposes its own imperfections its own errors its own flaws its own mishaps its own misadventures its own mistakes and its own misdeeds it contradicts itself on matters of justice for the same just God who assures his people that sons shall not be punished for the sins of their fathers turns around and destroys an entire household for the sin of one man. He has stolen some of Yahweh's war loot. It was the same Yahweh who afflicted thousands of his innocent people with plague and death to punish their evil King David for taking a census. It was the same Yahweh who allowed the humans to slaughter his son because the perfect Yahweh had botched his own creation. Consider how many have been stoned, burned, slaughtered, raped, and enslaved because of Yahweh's fucked up sense of justice, skewed sense of justice, screwed sense of justice, shitty sense of justice. The blood of innocent babies is on the per- is on the blood of innocent babies is on the perfect, just, compassionate hands of Yahweh. <sighs> I'm liberating myself 
the more I'm reading this to you all. The author's writings are so perfect, all I can do is gladly agree strongly. Contradictory history. The Bible contradicts itself on matters of history. A person who reads and compares the contents of the Bible will be confused about exactly who Esau's wives were, whether Timnah was a concubine or a son, or whether Jesus' earthly lineage is through Solomon or his brother Nathan. These are but a few of hundreds of documented historical contradictions. If the Bible cannot confirm itself in mundane earthly matters, how are we to trust it on moral and spiritual matters? <sighs> Reason is the author's best friend and mine too. We share the same best friend named Reason. Reason is doing us damn good. Unfulfilled prophecy. The Bible misinterprets its own prophecies. Read Isaiah chapter 7 and compare it to Matthew chapter 1 to find but one of many misinterpreted prophecies which Christians are either passively or willfully ignorant. The fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible is cited as proof of its divine inspiration. Yet here is but one major example of a prophecy whose intended meaning has been and continues to be twisted to support subsequent absurd and false doctrines. There are no ends to which the credulous will not go to support their feeble beliefs in the face of compelling evidence against them. The Bible is imperfect. It only takes one imperfection to destroy the supposed perfection of this alleged word of God. It, the Bible is not the word of God. And there are believers who say, well, the Bible is the word of God. No, it's not. Didn't Jesus allegedly claim that he is the word of God? So believers are debating and arguing, having shouting matches with Jesus, apparently. Many have been found. A perfect, many imperfections have been found in the Bible. A perfect God who reveals his perfect will in an imperfect book is impossible. I am thankful for the competence of the intelligence of this author. The omniscient changes the future. A God who knows the future is powerless to change it. An omniscient God who is all-powerful and free-willed is impossible. Ah. The cleverness of the author's brilliance is a form of good sweetness to me. The omniscient is surprised. A God who knows everything cannot have emotions. The Bible says that God experiences all the emotions of humans, including anger, sadness, jealousy, vengeance and happiness we humans experience emotions as a result of new knowledge a a man who had formerly been ignorant of his wife's infidelity will experience the emotions of anger and sadness only after he has learned what had been previously been hidden and to keep this from being heteronormative a person who had formerly been ignorant of their 
spouse's infidelity will experience the emotions of anger and sadness only after he has learned what had previously been hidden and to make this inclusive of LGBTQIA+, a woman who had formerly been ignorant of her wife's infidelity will experience the emotions of anger and sadness only after she has learned what had been previously been hidden. A man who had formerly been ignorant of his husband's infidelity will experience the emotions of anger and sadness only after he has learned what had previously been hidden. A woman who had formerly been ignorant of her husband's infidelity will experience the emotions of anger and sadness only after she has learned what had previously been hidden. In contrast, the omniscient God is ignorant of nothing. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing new may be revealed to him. So there is no gain knowledge to which he may emotively react. We humans experience anger and frustration when something is wrong, which we cannot fix. The perfect, omnipotent God, however, can fix anything. Humans experience longing for things we lack. The perfect God lacks nothing. An omniscient, omnipotent, and perfect God who experiences emotion is impossible. The conclusion of the matter, I've offered arguments for the impossibility and thus the non-existence of the Christian God, Yahweh. No reasonable and free-thinking individual can accept the existence of a being whose nature is so contradictory as that of Yahweh, the quote-unquote perfect creator of our imperfect universe. The existence of Yahweh is as impossible as the existence of cubic spheres, S-P-H-E-R-E-S, or invisible pink unicorns. Should any... should any believer who reads this persist in defending these impossibilities through means of quote-unquote divine transcendence and quote-unquote faith? And should any believer continue to call me a non-believing fool? I'll be forced to invoke the wrath of the invisible pink uniform. You are a fool for denying the existence of the IPU. You have rejected true faith and relied on your feeble powers of human reason. And thus arrogantly denied the existence of her divine transcendence, and so are you condemned. If such arguments are good enough for Yahweh, they're good enough for her invisible pinkness. As for me and my home, we shall choose reality. <sighs> her writings are aiding me in my healing and I appreciate her. I'm gonna let you know in advance that I strongly agree with the author on everything she says. So if you hear me reading, you're hearing me agreeing. A day is a day. A day is a day. No excuses. Have you been reading the latest from the Catholic Church? Apparently, they have decided to admit in the face of overwhelming evidence that evolution did indeed happen. Yay! Gee, they've come a long way. I suppose since they aren't a government anymore that can't poke out the eyes of leading scientists like they did in Galileo's day. 
Shouldn't evolution invalidate the biblical slash Pentateuch creation account, hence throwing Christianity in the toilet? I think it is invalidated. It invalidates itself. Even Orthodox Jews are now claiming that Genesis is metaphorical, not literal. (sighs) I'm so thankful that they're telling the truth. Yes, why it should, but the Catholic Church presented a loophole that the masses have been touting as a mantra ever since. I'm sure you all heard the lie they are spreading. The lie which tries to reconcile evolution with the six days of creation. Creationism is a myth. It's the a day can be like a thousand years to God lie. Here's an excellent example of this lie in use. The Jehovah's Witnesses argument that each of the six days encompasses thousands of years. Some may say even the idea of this planet passing from a formless and waste condition to its present form with continents, forests, plants, animals, and people, all in just six 24-hour days, this still is incredible. But where does the Genesis account say that the six days were 24 hours each? Though some religious groups teach this, which is a falsehood, the Genesis account does not say it. You yourself used the expression day in a broad sense of your grandfather's day. Likewise, the Bible often used the word day in a broad sense, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Keep in mind that the works spoken of in the first chapter of Genesis are those of God, not of men, not of man. Are God's days of work controlled by the rotation of this globe? Obviously not. Of God, the Bible says one day is is with Jehovah as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 8 And that even to God a day can have more than one meaning is seen when comparing this text with Psalm chapter 90 verse 4 which says A thousand years are in your eyes but as a watch during the night. So it is plain that the word day can be used to refer to a 24 hour day, a person's lifetime one thousand years or even longer. Is the Bible really the word of God? Page chapter 18, verse 19. So, of course, I'm disliking right now what I'm reading to you. And what I'm about to read to you next explains why. You free thinkers reading this are surely nodding your head, knowing the fault in this circular reasoning. Yes. That's why I'm nodding my head. You believers reading this are probably still clinging to the mantra like a pedophile to a six-year-old boy. Damn. There, well, in religion, there are child sex rings and adult human trafficking. (sighs) Well, no, no, well... No matter how hard you try to hold on to the biblical Jesus, I'm going to blow a hole through your lie and spread its shortcomings to everyone I meet. We all know I find it myself appointed duty to expose the Christian slash Jesus script Jewish scriptures, which is precisely what I'll do right now. Oh, I'm so thankful. And I was not being insensitive when I talked about the bad five or six-year-old boy. 
that is a extremely strong example of how harmful unnecessary stubbornness can be okay here we go fact the world is at least 4.6 billion years old the bible claims to be approximately 6500 believe christians try to argue this by saying the uses of the word day in genesis is actually a term for thousands of years in time this quote-unquote rationalization they believe can help evolution be accepted into the bible in other words christians are trying to say that the word day is not meant to be as a 24-hour period this idea is completely false and and implausible not plausible all it takes is a little research into the meaning of the word hebrew word for a day and the uses of it in inconsistency of course it should be common knowledge that the first five books of the hebrew uh, of course, it should be common knowledge that the first five books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for day used in Genesis' account is Yom, Y-O-M, which is a definite 24-hour period. Christians attempt to say that because there's no sun until the fourth day that the word Yom is null and void. This can't be for the Lord claimed there was light, a morning and evening prior to the sun being created. Hence, the sun was not even needed. Also note another contradiction here. The, that Christians slash Jews refuse to notice. They'll claim the word yom is void because there's no sun yet. That would mean that there couldn't have been light or way to decipher between morning and evening. Oh, so the word is indecipherable. Okay, got it. For the last article. Okay. They'll claim the word yom is void because there's no sun yet. That would mean that there couldn't have been a light or or way to decipher between morning and evening. Obviously, this is a major scientific blunder on Jehovah's behalf. No, now this fact alone pretty much blows the shit out of the Bible. But let's pretend to accept the word yom is really meant for eons of time. How then can we reconcile the following? Number one, if a day isn't an error... Why are an evening and a morning even mentioned? Actual days must be intended. Otherwise, men who lived hundreds of years, example, Seth and Noah, would really have lived millions of years. If a day is an era, then a year must be tremendously long, perhaps encompassing hundreds of millions of years. I am overjoyed by secular enlightenment. Number two, if a day is in an era, then much of the Old Testament becomes chaotic. It's also chaotic for the other reasons I mentioned previously in this episode. For example, in each of the following verses, the same Hebrew word yom is employed. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 and 7. And he, Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus chapter 34, verse 28. And thus I fell down before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 25. If quote unquote yam means error instead of a 24 hour period, Moses was there with the Lord for a very long time. Mmm. Now you're understanding more why I believe in applying intellect to reality. Number three, if a day means more than 24-hour period, then how are we to interpret the following verses as well as the scores of others? 
Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. In it thou shalt not work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and rested the seventh day. Exodus chapter 20, verse 9 through 11. Four, Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night states the sun rules the day and the moon ruin, rules the night. This obviously is referring to time as we know it. Times with days that are 24 hours long with daylight ruling half of each. Five, Adam was made on the sixth day, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, which is supposedly thousands of years long. This was followed by the seventh day, which was also thousands of years long. Following the seventh day, Adam fell into sin and was expelled from the garden. This would mean Adam lived thousands of years, which is false since he died at age 930, according to Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. 6. Genesis chapter 1, verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, surely speak of literal day and literal night and the inference from the statement in the evening and the morning were the first day is that it was a literal day of evening and morning 24 hours. There is no biblical evidence that the days of this chapter were longer periods. Ver- number seven. If we do try to buy into what the Jehovah's quote as a day can be a thousand years, even this, even this isn't sufficient enough time, for the earth is at least 4.6 billion. The biblical passage concerning time should have read that days can be like millions of years. Obviously, their claim falls apart under mathematic speculation. Obviously, their claim falls apart under mathematic speculation. Mathematic speculation. For those of you Christians who are still clinging to the idea that evolution can be reconciled with the Bible, take a little advice from one of your own brethren on the matter. The following is a Christian author who admits that the word yom does mean a 24-hour period in the creation account. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and this word can occasionally be, be used to mean an indefinite period of time if the content warrants. And the overwhelming preponderance of its occurrences in the Old Testament, however, it means a literal day. Still further, the plural form of the word Hebrew yamin is used over 700 times in the Old Testament and always without exception refers to literal days. The Bible has the answers. Henry Morris, page 94. Obviously, even creationist Morris admits the idea that each day represented an error is ridiculous. Not only is the day-age theory unacceptable scripturally, but it also is grossly in conflict with the geological position with which it attempts to compromise. My suggestion, make a valid justification as to how the creation account can be plausible. Until then, don't pimp feeble lies to cover up for your, for your even more errant book. Not an errant book. It's a fallible book, not an infallible book. Logic is lovely. That's all I can say in response to this author. Of course... There's some more.
evils of the Torah, evils, atrocities, and justice of the Torah. The following list is a short list of sadistic acts that are commanded aloud or threatened by God and his so-called righteous men. All of these verses can be found in the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. I have put them in chronological order so that you may verify them as you read along. Keep in mind that the scriptures literally have an atrocity on every other page. God entraps humans by placing the tree of knowledge in the garden and telling Adam and Eve not to eat of it. This is rather similar to placing a toy in front of a child and telling them they are not allowed to play with it. God created us with instinct, rebellion, and curiosity. Soon, he punishes us for only doing what is a part of our nature. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. God then commands that all women must have dangerous childbirths because, because Eve ate the fruit. In no way, shape, or form is it just that I must pay for the sins of my ancestors. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God caused sibling rivalry by favoring Abel over Cain, which absolutely no attempt at justification. This act of favoritism led to Abel's murderous death at the hands of Cain, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. God intentionally killed every man, woman, and child on the planet except for eight people in the great flood, according to Genesis chapter 7, verse 23. God commands Hagar, go back into slavery and bear children for a master, though she does not want to, according to Genesis chapter 16, verse 7 through 9. God burns down a whole city, women and children included, simply because they were supposedly homosexual. Genesis chapter 19, verses 23 through 25. Ur, Judas' firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and that the Lord slew him. How was Ur wicked? The Bible doesn't give us this bit of information on that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Genesis chapter 38, verse 7. God murders Onan for refusing to commit incest with his sister-in-law. Genesis chapter 38, verse 10. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. God repeatedly tells Moses exactly what calamity he will next visit upon the Egyptians if the Pharaoh does not allow the Israelites to be set free from slavery. Then he tells Moses also repeatedly that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will refuse to allow the Israelites to go thus bringing a calamity upon his own people, as well as showing him the awesome power of the Israelites as Lord. This occurs over and over, bringing calamity upon calamity upon the Egyptian people. What is troubling about this verse is that when God hardens the Pharaoh's heart, he's interfering with the Pharaoh's free will and ultimately bringing punishment on the Egyptians for something they are not punished. What is troubling about this verse is that when God hardens the Pharaoh's heart, he is interfering with the Pharaoh's free will and ultimately bringing punishment on the Egyptians for something they are not responsible for. As a final punishment, God decides to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. The Lord reduced himself to murdering innocent kids when he could have simply freed the Israelites himself with his omnipotent, quote unquote, omnipotent power. God punishes his children for the sins of their fathers unto the third and fourth generations. Punishing a child for the sins of their ancestors is not very just. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. God endorses slavery. He even sets up laws as, how, as to how slavery is to be carried out and goes as far as okaying beating them. Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 6. God sanctioned the selling of one's daughter. How can any being tell another to literally sell their child into slavery? Disgusting. Exodus chapter 21, verse 7. 
God orders the death of witches, sorcerers, and anyone who practices magic. Sadly enough, this verse was justification for the Inquisition. Exodus chapter 22, verse 18. God ordered to be killed 3,000 Israelites for no greater crime than worshiping a golden calf. I don't know about you, but death is a pretty harsh fucking punishment. Exodus chapter 2, verse 27. God commands death for cursing out one's parents and death for adultery. Gee, with these types of laws, the population should be almost nil by now. At Leviticus chapter 20, verses 9 through 10. Once again, God is a homophobe, or at the very least, a bigot. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Handicapped people must not approach the altar. Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 through 23. And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 30. God ordered and allowed human sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 28 through 29. God buries alive Korah and his family. Numbers chapter 16, verse 27. God killed 250 Levite princes who disagreed with Moses' leadership. He was so bloodthirsty that he wanted to slay more until he was talked out of it. Later, he put a plague upon 14,700 Jews who thought there was something wrong in killing 250 princes. Numbers chapter 16, verse 35. God, uh, God utterly destroyed the Canaanites at Horma as a favor to the Jews. Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. God abetted Moses in utterly destroying the Amorites at Heshbon, including the men the women and the little ones, Numbers chapter 21, verses 27 through 35. God commands Moses to kill all the Midianite people, including children and women. To top it off, he commands that the virgins be saved for later raping by Moses' soldiers. Numbers chapter 31, verse 17 through 18. God ordered Moses' army to utterly destroy 60 cities, killing all the women and children within. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. God ordered the Israelites to kill all the people of seven nations. He even says to show no mercy unto them. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 12. God orders that we kill everything that breathes in the cities that he gives us for inheritance. According to Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 16. A bastard can attend, can't attend church even to his 10th generation. As if denying an innocent child rights to worship isn't cruel Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 2 here are my thoughts on all those things I just read to you the biblical God is into double dealing deceit cheating trickery dishonesty and hypocrisy. And the biblical God is egotistical, bigoted, intolerant, dictatorial, pig-headed, bull-headed, overbearing, domineering, tyrannical, Authoritarian, totalitarian, arrogant, uh, 
narrow-minded and one-sided. So many believers are dogmatic because the biblical God is dogmatic. And being dogmatic is obviously an unwholesome character trait to possess. Absurd Torah science. The Torah Old Testament is very errant and contradictory to that of scientific facts. The first book of Genesis alone should be enough to invalidate Judaism to any intelligent person. Sadly, not only is Judaism still one of the world's leading religions, but it has spawned the most insane theism, Christianity. The goal of this page is to expose the inaccuracies of the Torah, hence shooting down its divine claim. All the verses shall appear in chronological order. Feel free to copy whatever you wish. Number one, the Genesis 1 creation account conflicts with the order of events that are known to science. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the earth is created before light and stars, birds and whales, before reptiles and insects and flowering plants for any animals. From science, we know that the true order of events was just the opposite. Hmm. Mm. Mm. I'm just positively amazed by her comprehension of history and of religious texts. Two, and God said, let there be light, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and in the evening and the morning with the first day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, verses. And God said, let there be light in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And God made two lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also in the evening and morning with the fourth day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 through 19. These violates two major facts. Light cannot exist without a sun. And secondly, how can morning be distinguished from evening unless there is a sun and moon? Christians try to claim that God is the light he's referring to, yet considering the context it is quite considering the context it's quite obvious that the light God is speaking of is light emitted by the sun. Just another feeble attempt at trying to rationalize such a major blunder. Number three, God spends one sixth of his entire creative effort the second day working on a solid firmament. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. The strange structure which God calls heaven is intended to separate the higher waters from the lower waters. This firmament, if it existed, would have been quite an obstacle to our space program. Number four, plants are made on the third day. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. Before there was a sun to drive their photosynthetic processes. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. Number five, and God said, let the light bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, 
in the evening, the morning with the third day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11 through 13 verses. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly. In the evening, the morning with the fifth day, Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Genesis says that life existed first on the land as plants and later the seas teemed with living creatures. Geological science can prove that the sea teemed with animals and vegetable life long before vegetation and life appeared on land. Mm, 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 mm. How can they say the Bible is flawless, but it's so insulting to historical realities? Mm. Number six, and God said, let the water bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Genesis chapter 1 verse 20. Birds do not emerge from water. Again, how can they say the Bible is flawless yet? It constantly gives the middle finger to what is called common sense. Even in religion, common sense is uncommon. Number seven, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind, cattle and creeping thing, the beast of the earth after its kind, and it was so. And God made everything that creepeth upon the earth after its kind, Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 to 25. Science contends that reptiles were created long before mammals, not simultaneously. While reptiles existed in the carboniferous age, mammals did not appear until the close of the reptilian age. And number eight, so God created man in his own image, male and female created he them, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, in the evening and the morning were the sixth day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. If Adam was created on the sixth day, approximately 6,000 years ago, Bishop Usher's his calculations, then nobody lived before 4,000 B.C. prehistoric men, then nobody lived before 4,000 B.C. prehistoric men would be fictitious. By tracing Gen. By tracing the genealogy of Jesus back 77 generations to Adam, the third chapter of Luke also supports belief in a very young earth. If each man had lived approximately 100 years, then the world would be no more than 9,684, 7,700 plus 1,984 years old. If each of Jesus' ancestors had lived to be 1,000 years old, an age not even reached by meth. Methuselah, the earth would still be 78,984, 77,000 plus 1,984 years old, according to creationists. And number nine, and the every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. Carnivores, beasts, and fowl did not eat green herbs, nor were all animals originally herbivores. Simply consider tapeworms, vampire bats, mosquitoes, barracudas, tigers, etc. 
Number 10, in Genesis chapter 31, in Genesis chapter 1, the entire creation takes six days, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, at the end of which the earth and its living things are pretty much as they are today. But we know from modern science that the universe, including the earth and life on earth, evolved slowly over billions of years. 11, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, humans are created instantaneously from dust and breath, whereas they actually evolved over millions of years from simpler life forms. Science can, in fact, trace back human evolution conclusively 3.2 million years. Number 12, God makes the animals, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and parades them before Adam to see if any would strike his fancy. But none seem to have what it takes to please him. After making the animals, God has Adam named them all. The naming of several million species must have kept Adam busy for a while. Why Adam would still have to be living for, we haven't even discovered nor named all the species. Also, consider the idea of every living creature being brought to the Middle East. That would have killed many animals due to climatic changes. Number 13, God curses the serpent, making him crawl in his belly and eat dust in chapter 3, verse 14. One wonders how he got around before by hopping on his tail, perhaps. But snakes don't eat dust, do they? Number 14, there were giants in the earth in, these, in those days. In chapter 6, verse 4, but there is no archaeological evidence for the existence of, those, of these giants. Also, there is a reference to the Nephilim being on the earth which is a term used for a half-angel, half-human. Why is there no archaeological evidence for the existence of the Nephilim either? Whew. It goes all the way to 32, so let me just read it. I'll tell you what I think after. Number 15, Noah is told to make an ark that is 450 feet long in chapter 6, verse 14 through 15. The largest wooden ships ever built were just over 300 feet, and they required diagonal iron strapping for support. Even so, they leaked so badly that they had to be pumped constantly. Are we to believe that Noah, with no ship built, with no shipbuilding knowledge and no shipbuilding tradition to rely upon, was able to construct a wooden ship that was longer than any that has been built since number 16 whether by twos or by sevens noah takes male and female representatives from each species of everything that creepeth upon the earth in chapter 7 verse 8 now this must have taken some time along with expert knowledge of taxonomy genetics biogeography and anatomy how did noah manage to collect the endemic species from the new world australia polynesia and other remote regions entirely unknown to him. How, once he found them, did he transport them back to his near eastern home? How could he tell the male and female beetles there are more than 500,000 species apart? How did he know how to care for these new and unfamiliar animals? How did he find the space on the ark? How did he manage to find and care for the hundreds of thousands of parasitic species or the hundreds of thousands of plant species? Plants are ignored in the Genesis account but the animals wouldn't last long if the plants died in the flood. No, wait, don't tell me a miracle happened, millions of them. Number 17. All the animals boarded the ark in the self-same day, Genesis chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Since there were seven million species involved, they must have boarded at a rate of at least 100 per second. How did poor Noah and his family make sure that the correct number of each species entered through the door and then get them all settled into their proper living quarters so efficiently. I wish the airline companies could do as well. 
Number 18, the flood covered the highest mountaintops, Mount Everest, with 15 cubits to spare. Genesis chapter 7, verse 20. Where did all the water come from? Where did it all go? Why is there no evidence of such a massive flood in the geological record? Number 19, when the animals left the ark, Genesis chapter 8, verse 19, what would they have eaten? There would have been no plants after the ground had been submerged for nearly a year. What would the carnivores have eaten? Whatever prey they ate would have gone extinct. And how did the New World primates or the Australian marsupials find their way back after the flood subsided? Number 20. Noah kills the clean beasts and burns their dead bodies for God. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. According to Genesis chapter 7 verse 8, this would have caused the extinction of all quote-unquote clean animals since only two of each were taken onto the ark. So why is it that we still have quote-unquote clean animals? Number 21, God is filled with remorse for having drowned his creatures in the flood. He even puts the rainbow in the sky so that whenever the animals see it, they will remember God's promise not to do it again. Genesis chapter 9 verse 13. But rainbows are caused by the nature of light. The The refractive index of water and the shape of raindrops. There were rainbows billions of years before humans existed. 22. The whole earth was of one language. In chapter 11, verse 1. But this could not be true since by this time around 2400 BCE there were already many languages each unintelligible to the others. Twenty-three, Genesis chapter eleven, verse four. According to the Tower of Babel story, that many human languages were created instantaneously by God. Genesis chapter eleven, verse nine. But actually, the various languages evolved gradually over long periods of time. Twenty-four, Genesis chapter fourteen, verse fourteen. Abraham goes into pursuit, looking for his captive relative in the city of Dan. The problem here is that the city of Dan did not exist until over three hundred years after Moses died. How is it that Abraham could enter the city of Dan when the city did not even exist? 25. G- Jacob displays his and God's knowledge of biology by having goats copulate while looking at streaked rods. The result is streaked baby goats. Genesis chapter 30, verse 37. The author of Genesis, God, in quote, in, as a question mark, believe that genetic characteristics of the offspring are determined by what the parents see at the moment of conception. This is a laughable belief. Ask any animal husbandrist. 26. Camels don't divide the hoof. Leviticus chapter 11 verse 4. This statement is completely moronic for every teenager knows what a camel toe and how it's used to describe a specific split. 27. The Bible says that heirs and conies are unclean because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 5 through 6. But hares and conies are not ruminants and they do not chew the cud. 28. Birds, bats are birds, the biblical God. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13 through 19, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 11 through 18. 29. Some birds have four feet, according to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 20 through 21. 30. If there is a God, there's one thing we know for sure about, quote-unquote, him. He really likes insects, particularly beetles. 
There are more species of insects by far than all other species of life on Earth. As J.B.S. Haldane said, he has an inordinate fondness for beetles, yet insects are said to have four legs in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 22 through 23. 31. Unicorns have never existed, yet they are said to in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17. Lastly, 32. Fiery serpents have never existed yet. Numbers chapter 21, verse 6 claims they do and to this day still inhabit certain cities. The living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, the beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 to 25. Science contends that reptiles were created long before mammals, not simultaneously. While reptiles existed in the Carboniferous age, mammals did not appear until the close of the reptilian age. And what are my thoughts on all these things I just read to you? It shows me that religion encourages people to be absent-minded and attentive and into the far away, forgetful in the crowds daydreaming that they do. Because Data and research are what they are thoughtless of. Unfortunately, that is their misfortune. And now you understand why I'm an unbeliever and a non-believer in religion. I am proud to be an apostate and I am proud of not regularly attending any and all houses of worship. I love being unchurched. And lastly, I love being religiously unaffiliated as well. If God is supposed to be of omnipotence, omniscience, omnibenevolence, omnipresence, the news wouldn't be a wealthy avenue for bad news and prayer. would be deemed unnecessary and you wouldn't have all these religions 
claiming to be the sole religion of this supposed deity and no prophecy would ever be rendered failed and false. Religions are outdated, harmful to individuals, harmful to society, impediments to the progress of science and humanity, their sources of immoral acts and immoral customs, and they are political tools for social control.